0: Now, the good fight with Yasha Monk. Hello, I'm Sarah Longwell, publisher of The Bulwark, and I recently wrote a piece for Persuasion called The New Nihilists. I've been a conservative my whole life, and I've really seen a shift in the party. You know, when I was coming up in the conservative movement, the party was committed to the idea of character mattering. There were reams of books written about how important it was for leaders, for the country to have people in politics be of good character. And that is a thing that has not only changed, not only is that no longer something conservatives or the Republican Party seem to hold as a core value, but it's even worse than that. They seem to be either celebrating or coming up with excuses for some of the most horrible behavior. I wrote the piece actually before Paul Pelosi was attacked with a hammer and many Republicans and conservatives reacted by making fun of him for being attacked. Even supposedly good Republicans like Glenn Youngkin said things like, we're going to send Nancy Pelosi back to be with her husband, her husband who was in the ICU from just being attacked. This sort of total absence now of commitment to character has become a defining feature of the Republican Party And it's a total reversal of the party that I knew. You have candidates like Herschel Walker, who professes to be a champion of fatherhood, and he's had four secret children come to light during his campaign. He's had several women allege that he paid for their abortions, despite professing that he is pro-life and believing there should be no exceptions for rape or incest. And not only do Republicans tolerate that behavior, but they encourage people to vote for Herschel Walker. They make excuses. They say that it's fine. And I can't tell you how much conservatism when I was younger was rooted in the idea of there being objective truth and that truth mattered a great deal. And now it is a party that is steeped in lies, tolerates and continues to repeat lies and puts forward and endorses candidates of extremely low character. And it is now the rule rather than the exception. Sarah Longwell's piece called The New Nihilists was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community.
1: My guest today is Russ Muirhead. Russ is a friend of mine. He is a professor at Dartmouth, and the co-author with Nancy Rosenblum, one of my PhD advisors of a lot of people are saying the new conspiracism and the assault on democracy. In 2020, Russ was elected to the State Assembly in New Hampshire. And so part of his conversation was about the role of conspiracy theories in contemporary politics. Part of the conversation was also about what it is like for a professor of political theory to do real politics in a state legislature, how you can channel the indignation you sometimes have at the other political party, but also seek to find sensible compromises with people on important issues like election law. And finally, it was about one of the evergreens of this podcast what Democrats are doing wrong, and how they can put themselves into a better position to beat authoritarian
2: populists like Donald Trump.
1: Russ Murhat, welcome to the podcast.
2: I'm so happy to be here. Thank you.
1: Well, I really look forward to this conversation. Russ, I've known you for many years, but I've only known you for a few years in your new capacity as a elected official. What's it been like going from studying politics and teaching politics to making politics, to being a state legislator in New Hampshire?
2: I have to say, it's a lot of fun. Doing politics is a lot of fun. Sitting in a legislature is, for me, it's like, I don't know, being back in school. I just feel like I learn so much every day. And I almost think any political scientist would probably love serving in a legislature for a couple of years, if they could possibly manage it.
1: Well, I think in general, political scientists should spend a lot more time talking to normal people, listening to focus groups, and if they could even actually go and do some politics, they might understand more about the world.
2: Yeah, and I'd say legislature in particular, because there's a difference between kind of activism politics, movement politics, and legislative politics. And movement politics, you know, it's often about activating like-minded people, identifying yourself to other like-minded people, discovering each other, coming together, forming a movement that has an essential place in democratic reform. But legislative politics, I mean, it's about brokering disagreement from the beginning. There's no legislature that's defined just by a movement. There's always more than one party, more than one faction in a legislature. So legislative politics are about making politics under conditions of disagreement. And that's a different experience from just getting involved in the neighborhood, state, whatever, national level in a movement.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I was thinking about a different difference, which is That is very easy standing on the outside as an academic or sometimes as an opinion writer and saying, why is the government being stupid in pursuing policy A when it has bad effect X? But when you're a legislator or when you're a policymaker, you feel like, well, I have policy A that has bad effect X, but also good effect Y. Or I have policy B, which is bad effect K and good effect L. And those are my two options, right? So which all things considered is better? And so it's often really unhelpful to sit down on the sidelines saying, You idiots, you know, you caused X when from the inside you're saying, Yes, I know, and I'm upset about that. But the alternative would have caused this other bad outcome, which all things considered, I believe, is even worse. So you have to sort of tell me a
2: little bit more to be helpful. Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, look, there's a kind of right answer mentality in politics. Like, the right answers are there. It's just about authorizing them, empowering them. And actually, a lot of people in the legislature have that mentality. I mean, they kind of think, look, if our side just didn't encounter any obstacles, we would be able to legislate the right answers, and the world would be permanently improved as a result of that. And the phrase that my co-author Nancy Rosenblum used in the title of one of her books is On the Side of the Angels. It's incredibly tempting to think that's your side, and I don't think people who are engaged in practical legislative politics are immune to that. What you're describing is a certain kind of wisdom. It might come from political activity. It might come just from looking at the details of policy, which is, you know, the realization that there are no right answers, or very rarely do we face something where there's just a right answer, a great answer, an answer that solves our problems. We're always in politics in a world of second best at best.
1: And I can't let a mention of Nancy go by without mentioning that she was my teacher when I was a graduate student and very influential in my thinking and on the thinking of many of my peers and many people in political science. You just made me realize something that I actually hadn't thought about, parallel between two different institutions in our democracies. So one quintessential democratic institution is an adversarial legal system in which somebody makes the case for prosecution and somebody makes the case for defense. Now, by and large, there may be exceptions. People who are part of that system understand that they're going to really strongly play the role of one of these, but you need both roles. A prosecutor should understand that the system to function as it should needs a good defense. And even a public defender should understand that you need somebody to prosecute criminals and that a good prosecutor that plays fairly is important for the system to come to the right results. Now, in a way, a parliament was conceived of a similar thing, right, that you don't try to suppress factions, you try to organize and verbalize them in the hope that the debate between them and the clash between them is going to come up to policy that's closer to the public good than the alternative would be. But interestingly, the participants in that system Rarely have that kind of self conception, right? I think most lawyers do understand hey, I'm arguing my case, but I'm glad there's somebody out there arguing the other case well. In our political system, perhaps because of polarization, perhaps because of the anti democratic shift of the Republican Party, perhaps because of some other reasons, that doesn't really seem to be the case most of the time. That self understanding.
2: Yeah, I think you're putting your finger on something really, really cool, really, really important, actually, really important to making politics work in the United States and also paradoxically important to building a governing majority, a party that can really rule. And that is, yeah, I like the analogy to the adversarial system in criminal law. You're absolutely right. Like the very best lawyers always understand the other side. They understand the other's case. They understand the weakness. They could try the case on the other side like that and do a great job because they know the weaknesses of their own side. They know the bad facts that they have to cover up or answer for. And they also understand the utility of having an argument and they respect the other side. It's a very bad lawyer who doesn't know how to make the case on the other side. Well, in politics, we have a lot of equivalent, like, bad lawyers. We have a lot of people, a lot of Democrats who look across and think, you know, why are the Republicans? Just because people are evil, because people are frail and self-interested in the money to rule, you know, the money the money to skewed everything. And you got a bunch of privileged people who are trying to defend their privilege. So there's no good reason for the other side. And the Republicans look at the Democrats and see a bunch of, you know, self-serving cultural elites like professors like me and people who don't want to work, people who are takers, not makers, to go back to kind of Romney's characterization. And they think, well, the world would just be much better off if we didn't have that side. And if that's the way we're thinking of each other, first of all, we've just taken a very, very giant step toward delegitimizing the other side, which is one of the huge problems today and the way conspiracy works in American politics and elsewhere. But also, we've made it more difficult for us to understand our own weaknesses, to answer for them, to guard against them, and to build a real coalition. So probably the single most important thing that a civic education could do is enable citizens to give an account of each side or the many sides to the political contest, and one that shows us what a conservative would look like at their best. And so good that you'd think, wow, I would hope that any good democracy would have some conservatives and would show what a progressive looks like at their best, so that you'd hope that there'd be some really good progressives in any And I don't mean to compress politics to just two sides, but let's just work with that since in the United States we have these two great parties, one of which identifies itself as progressive and one of which identifies itself as conservative. Yeah, if you're progressive and you can't give an account of what conservatism really looks like and what a conservative party ought to be, then you're driving with your eyes closed and you're going to make it harder to paradoxically build your party because you can't take those little bits of wisdom from the conservative side and try to acquire them, similarly for the other side. I think you're right. You're really onto something that's incredibly incisive.
1: So there's two ideas in this, right? The first is the existence of what I've heard called the ideological Turing test, right? So the Turing test is the ability of a computer to pass as a human. The ideological Turing test is the ability of a progressive to write a talking point about abortion or about some kind of topic so that a conservative would see it and say, yes, that sounds like the argument I would make. That sounds like the argument somebody on my side would make. And obviously vice versa as well. The ability of a conservative to formulate an argument about abortion, or about some other big topic in such a way to progress it say, yes, this feels like a fair account of what my side believes. This feels like it was written by somebody on my side. And I guess the first point is, Being able to do that reduces effective polarization to some extent, because it means that rather than thinking, well, this is such a crazy position that only a lunatic would hold that or only an evil person would hold that, you start to say, hey, I'm able to put myself in their shoes and therefore to understand that reasonable people may be persuaded by this argument. I may not agree with this argument at all. I may very strongly disagree with it but I can see how a decent person could hold it, right? I guess the second point that you're insinuating is that being able to pass the ideological Turing test actually helps you win elections. Now, why is that? Is that because it means that you can sort of craft policy that is more acceptable to the other side? Is it because you can play to some of them sort of moral concerns? Is it because you can find effective responses to what they're really animated by? Why do you think that if Democrats were better at passing the ideological Turing test, they may be better able to beat Donald Trump in twenty twenty four.
2: And by the way, I think just the point about diminishing the toxicity of affective polarization—that would be enough. If that's all this did, that would that would be enough to advocate for you know the civic capacity of describing the world as the other side sees it. But yeah, I think in fact it would help you win elections. It would help Democrats win win elections if if they could understand and give a really good account, a better account of conservatism than most conservatives could offer. That would really help. Why? You know, look, we operate under a framework of constitutional rules. Now, you and I, as kind of political and legal thinkers, might have a better constitution in mind for a country like the United States than the one that the United States actually possesses and inherited from the summer of 1787. So let's just put aside our ideals for a moment and say we've got this constitution. It has the Senate in the Senate, the states are represented. And somehow we didn't get just one Dakota, we got two Dakotas. (laughs) And somehow, you know, progressives are geographically very clustered. And so for the progressive party to build a majority, they need to create a geographically dispersed majority. They need to appeal to people outside of Boston and San Francisco. And that means that they need to appeal to people who aren't as pure as progressives and as liberals as maybe the definitive progressive is. And they can't do that if they don't understand something. The Democratic Party needs Joe Manchin to have a majority in the Senate. And as Joe Manchin said, if you don't like the way I vote, elect more progressives. He says, I'm not a progressive. But you're not going to get a progressive senator out of West Virginia. And if you don't have a Democratic senator out of West Virginia right now, you don't have a majority in the Senate. So we don't need less Joe Manchin. We need four more of them or eight more of them. So you have a filibuster-proof majority. So that's just one reason. In the United States to rule, there's this numeric formula. I'm just going to describe it, even though I don't mean to be condescending like a teacher is so often, but you need a majority of 435 congressional districts that are elected every two years. You need a majority of the states, but only a third of them is elected every two years. And so you need a majority that's populous, that's numerous to get the Congress. You need a majority that's enduring in time to get the Senate, because you need to hold your majority together for at least four years to get a majority there. And you need a majority that's geographically dispersed. You need a durable, extensive, and diverse majority to rule under this constitution. It's not obviously a time-slice majority of just the national population. And there's no way to do that without creating a really, really cacophonous Heterogeneous, diverse, or as we like to say, inclusive majority. And, you know, purity rituals are not going to get us there. And just the deepening conviction that the way you think is the perfect way to think and that your party isn't a party, it's the side of the angels, doesn't get you there. And what does get you there is a really capacious political imagination where you can close your eyes and imagine how the world looks to somebody who sees it from the other side of the political fray. And then you can start to, like I said, not just manipulate people who disagree with you, but actually capture some of the pieces of wisdom and insight that the other side kind of has an advantage in possessing and bring them over to your side. Mix them in with your public philosophy. Mix a few conservative elements in with a dominantly progressive public philosophy to get something that can elect 54 senators.
1: Yeah, this strikes me as one of the really odd pieces of sort of progressive discourse in the last few years, but there's all of this focus on how unjust the Constitution supposedly is, how unjust the Senate supposedly is. And there are certain remedies to it, which I favor. I think that Puerto Ricans should be given a vote on whether they want to join the United States as a state. And of course, they may decide not to. I think there is a good argument for the District of Columbia to have full voting rights, including representation in the Senate. But the fundamental factors that drive this are just not realistically going to change. And I feel like sort of the attempt to delegitimize the basic shape of the Senate often comes at the expense of recognizing that realistically, Democrats, in order to have influence in this country, will just have to win 51 or, as you say, potentially 60 Senate seats. So what do you think it would look like for the Democratic Party to actually realize that? What does it take for Democrats to be able to win in Indiana, in Missouri, perhaps in one of the Dakotas? And to anticipate one of the frequent objections to this, am I just saying that we should give up on the rights of minorities and that we should sort of throw our cards in and give up on anything that's important to progressives? So is there a way of building those majorities in a way that is conformable with i would say liberal rather than progressive but let's say left of center values about equality and the equal treatment of all of our citizens
2: the first thing i think we have to do is make this our goal i think that the real defect i see in american politics right now is a lack of ambition both sides want to win the next election and only the next election and they're content to win it just barely I see this absence of ambition is even more definitive on the Republican side than the Democrat. It's always easier to see the flaws of your opponents, but, you know, trying to kind of disenfranchise people on the margin so that you can get that 0.4% advantage and just barely win the congressional seat in a swing district. I mean, that wasn't the way Ronald Reagan thought about American politics. He took his conservatism to the country. He argued for it. I found it unconvincing and in many ways repellent, but he won 49 states after serving for one term. And that was a reflection of not just his capacity as a speaker, but his ambition. And the last Republican I saw that had that ambition was Karl Rove. When he helped get George W. Bush elected in 2000, he came in and said, we're going to try to build a durable governing majority. That's a quote from an interview he gave to the New Yorker that sent chills up the spines of liberals all over the country when they read it. And, you know, he wanted to make conservatism compassionate. So he took this thing from the progressive side, compassion, and tried to acquire it for conservatism. What liberals and conservatives need to do is exactly that, but in reverse. We need to identify the things in the conservative public philosophy that actually are good and try to get some of those for us. Now here too, that I, virtue. Democrats tend to speak the language of equality and less so the language of virtue or distinctiveness or deservingness. And there's no reason why we should have a one-sided egalitarian language that gives up on virtue completely. We appreciate distinction, we appreciate effort, and we understand that some people make a claim for themselves that shows them to be, in a sense, unequal. We also understand that everybody can make a certain kind of claim for themselves by revealing their virtue to the world, and that one of the ways to do that is through work and the dignity of work. And I think Democrats have to speak the language of the dignity of work. It's consistent with their belief in making work pay. It's consistent with their commitment to protecting the rights of workers. But they also have to believe in hard work, you know, not just in the right not to work, but in hard work and the virtues that human beings show to the world when they work hard at something, when they master something, and when they care about doing something well. So that's just one example. If conservatism can be compassionate, and, and I think it can be, I don't think it's really tried very hard to be since the early 2000s, you know, the more progressive and egalitarian public philosophy can also be about virtue. And I really think work is the thing for us to keep our eyes on, and we have to remember that the work ethic is something that matters, that should be defended. Another thing is a certain kind of love of country. So it's obvious to me as a Democrat and as somebody in electoral politics just how profoundly patriotic my friends are in the Democratic Party. But you know, we're really good at also criticizing our country. And to be a progressive is to say, hey, here are the things we're inheriting in our political, you know, community and our tradition that are unjust. That are unwise. We want to change them. We want to change and improve and progress. So that's our whole orientation. But that doesn't mean that we're not kind of awed by what we've inherited and that we don't love what we have and want to preserve a lot of it. And I think we need to learn how to speak that language without giving up one speck of our conviction about individual rights and the way those apply to even the smallest minority to even the most overlooked individuals. And so, no, we don't change that. But we do look to what we can acquire to complement our public philosophy.
1: I couldn't agree more. You speak beautifully about sticking with your liberal and progressive values, but also finding the areas where you can have agreement and overlap with, with conservatives. What does that look like in the legislature? You've now been in the New Hampshire state legislature for about two years. When you come into that very adversarial environment, does every sort of revert to being on the side of the angels and shouting at each other across the aisle? Or have you had opportunities to put some of those aspirations into practice?
2: I'll tell you, it's hard to overstate how adversarial it is and how adversarial my experience in the New Hampshire legislature was in the last two years. I was in the minority. And when you're in the minority, you lose almost everything. And the stuff that we lost was stuff that I care about as much as I care about anything in public life. It's stuff that has to do with reproductive rights, with voting rights, With public education. And so when a bill that I really care about goes down and I see the other side celebrating its you know defeat or something I really oppose passes, it's hard to describe the feeling one has. You know, there are feelings of revulsion, of hatred, of despondency. It's hard, it's really hard. It's hard to lose in politics. And it's hard to look over and say, oh, yeah, well, I understand what it means to be a conservative. I'm a political philosopher. I can give an account. No, that's not the feeling I have when I lose one of these bills. And it's not the feeling I have when the other side pulls some you know, procedural shenanigan in order to advance its cause, something that's perfectly within the bounds of the rules but is a little bit unusual or something and maybe undercuts the spirit of fair play, or so we think, on the losing side. So no, it's really hard. It's really easy to hate the other side. It's really easy to come to think of them as just constituted by people who are just fundamentally not nice (laughs) or fundamentally corrupt or something like that. Super easy. And I actually think that the most important thing in day-to-day work in politics where you're in the fray is to be able to participate in common life. I think a little bit about David Hume. David Hume is a prodigy philosopher out of the Scottish Enlightenment is talking about his philosophic theories that, that actually fill him with doubt and despair, theories of skepticism. And he says, you know what cures it for him is going out to the pub and having a drink with friends and playing backgammon. And he says this in the treatise on human understanding. And we well, don't have to read David Hume to know this. I mean, to have a drink with somebody, to have a cup of coffee with somebody to have lunch with somebody. one time I was in this committee meeting in, in an academic context. And we fought for three days. It was a committee that met for three days. We fought, 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 fought. And at the end of the three days, I thought, I never want to see these people I've been disagreeing with again. For the rest of my I'd never want to see them. Never, I'm not coming to campus again for months, I thought. And the guy I disagree with the most put his hand on my shoulder and said, we're going out to lunch. And I almost wanted to puke. But I said, okay. And like two beers into that lunch, you know, we were singing songs and joining each other. <laughs> like we were having a good time. And we didn't stop disagreeing, but we remembered what it would be like to just interact as two human beings. And so I do think, you know, say concretely for somebody in a legislature, I try to do this, have lunch, have coffee, make fun of each other. It's incredibly healthy to let people make fun of you. Uh, Tell a joke at your expense, tell a joke at somebody else, take the piss out of somebody, as they say in the UK. And when the vote comes you're still going to really hate the other side. It's still going to sting and hurt. When the campaign comes, you're going to campaign against the other side with everything you have. But in between, you know, remember how to be human with each other. And this June, I got an email. It was like, legislative softball game. We're meeting you know, to play softball. And I thought, that's the last thing I want to do with these people who have been sticking it to me over and over and over again for the last two years. You know, and I could give you an account of the Republicans I've gone up against that would probably make you hate them. (laughs) I can describe what they did. So that's how I felt. I don't want to go play softball. And my wife said, no, come on, you got to go. You got to go be human. I was like, all right, it's hot day. It's Sunday. I'd rather be with my kids. You know, I drive down it's probably two hours away. And sure enough, you know, there's a cooler full of beer and we're hanging out. And, you know, we didn't play like Republican against Democrat. It's kind of mixed up. And, you know, we just had such a nice time. And an hour and a half into it, I was like, you know, why are these people here? It's not because they're liberals or conservatives. They just want to advance their sides because they they want to make this institution work. The legislature, they're investing, they're breathing life in the institution itself. They're trying to maintain some ties of likability, some capacity to enjoy each other as human beings so that when we go back in there and fight like mad, we don't destroy the place.
1: What does that look like in your day-to-day work? In I believe you're on the election law committee, or I don't know exactly what the name of a committee is. What is the nature of the disagreements over this really consequential issue at the moment? And have you been able to find some kind of common ground on an issue that in New Hampshire, but also in many other states, particularly in Pennsylvania and Arizona, may cut to the core of whether we have free and fair elections in the United States in 2024?
2: That is the committee I serve on. It's the election law committee. And that's actually why I ran two years ago. Nancy Rosenblum and I had just finished this book called A Lot of People Are Saying About what we called the new conspiracism in American politics. And among other things, you know, we wrote about the rigged election conspiracy and we kind of followed the logic of that conspiracy to the possibility, we write about it in the conclusion of the book, that a president might lose an election, you know, and fail to vacate the office. And by the way, when we were writing that out, we pulled it from the text at one point. We said, this is just too outlandish. People are going to think we've kind of lost our bearings if we have this in the book. And then we thought, but no, no, no. If you actually do follow the logic along, that that is where it kind of leads. So we got to put it in there and, and not because we think it will happen. Well, of course, January 6th did happen. Anyway, so I thought there might be this kind of attack on election administration You know, what seemed preposterous in 2016 for the person who won the election to claim that the election was rigged and actually claimed that the elections in New Hampshire were rigged, that busloads of people were sent up from Massachusetts to fraudulently vote in the little towns of New Hampshire, you know, in the wards of our cities. And by the way, if you know anything about like New Hampshire voting, it wouldn't be easy to unload buses of people from Massachusetts. But you know, that was the allegation. It was actually investigated by the New Hampshire Secretary of State's office, of course, which found that there was no fraud whatsoever in the 2016 election. Again, so weird for the winner of the election to say this. He was upset he lost the popular vote, I guess. But that's why I went in. I wanted to get on the election law committee. Luckily, the leadership put me on that committee. And yes, that's ground zero for the attack on election administration. It's happening in the states, not at the national level. And it's happening in states all over the country. And There are just millions of people, possibly tens of millions of people, who think that American elections are marred by widespread fraud and think that, you know, recent elections were rigged. And they are introducing, they're getting people in the Republican Party to introduce bills that will actually paradoxically create opportunities for fraud. Against the background of this fight, and it's a partisan fight in many of these bills, here's the thing. Let's say the dynamic is... The Democrats are the minority, the Republicans are the majority. So to win this fight, I've got to get some Republicans to join the coalition. That's the only way I'm going to defeat some stuff like this. Got to make some sort of common cause. And one of the ways you do that is by looking for those bills that just aren't fundamentally ideological or partisan. In any legislature, you know, just sort of like the Supreme Court, there are a whole bunch of cases that you know are going to be essentially partisan ideological cases, but a whole bunch of are not. And you look for those occasions where you can get a 9-0, in the case of my committee, 21-0 vote. And you try not to make those partisan also. So quick anecdote, there was a bill that came up. It was essentially an in-the-weeds bill on election administration. There was nothing ideological or partisan about it. But I could see the way it was shaken out. It was going to be a party vote. And this can happen on anything. Once you start to really dislike each other, once you start to not trust each other, once you're just used to fighting with each other, if they go this way, we go that way they go high, we go low. If they go low, we go high. So it was going to be a whatever, 11 to 9 vote. So I was like, there's no reason for this to happen. And I said, you know, I think to the chair, I think if we work on this a little bit more, we could probably get a unanimous vote out of it. And the chair, who's a Republican, saw the utility of that. Because she could have just said, stop wasting my time. I can do anything I want on this committee. I'm the head of the majority. Instead of doing that, she said, no, okay, you're so smart, professor. Let's see what you can do. And we created a little working group. And the people who really cared about the bill, they came in with the most kind of moving spirit of compromise. They really wanted to solve problems in the weeds, problems that election moderators experience. And they said, OK, I can give up on this. One of them said, but this thing I think is really important. The other one's like, OK, if you think that's really important, I think I can go along with you on that. But such and such is where I draw the line. And they did this. And in 45 minutes, they revised this bill so that you know, the leaders of the two factions could sign on to it. And it passed unanimously. I saw that possibility. I'm glad I spoke up, but I'm also even more glad that the committee chair from the other party saw that this would be worth trying. And you know, I do think we need to do as much of that as we possibly can, so that we have the social capital that will allow us to maintain a democracy through the fights that we know we're going to have. And also so that if I'm in the minority again, that I have enough trust and goodwill on the other side that occasionally I can say, hey, this is one we've got to figure out a way around.
1: So you mentioned your great book with Nancy. Some people are saying, why are conspiracy theories so central to American politics, to the politics of other democracies at the moment, politics in particular, of these populist candidates and movements? And what do people normally get wrong about conspiracies? How is it that... Our usual f- way of conceptualizing what the nature of a conspiracy theory is actually misunderstands them.
2: A classic account of conspiracy theories is that they are the tool that losing social classes and social groups use to make sense of their declining position. And there's a chapter of a recent, maybe 10 year ago, book on American conspiracy theories that says conspiracy theories are for losers. And it's a very familiar idea that goes back to Hofstadter. That's not what we're seeing right now. You know, when Putin engages in the billion-person conspiracy theory when the president of the United States trucks in one conspiracy after another. They're the most powerful people in the world. And it's no longer just about, you know, social groups kind of explaining to themselves a hostile world by scapegoating some minority. It's really different. And it's more political. It's about power. It's really common when people hear like what they think of as baffling and wacky conspiracies like, say, Pizzagate. Hillary Clinton, child sex trafficking from the basement of a pizza. It's just preposterous. It's ludicrous. And the question they ask is, who could believe this? Do the people who repeat it actually believe it? And those are psychological questions. And we ask them because we just can't imagine that people could bring themselves to believe something so wacky. But the psychological questions, as interesting as they are, I think, are distracting us from the politics of these. And what these do in practice is delegitimate the other side. They eliminate all doubt. We are just talking about this idea that your side, as convincing as it is, isn't the side of the angels, isn't the whole truth, isn't perfection, and how that leads to ideally picking insightful elements of the opposite public philosophy and, and acquiring it. Well, what conspiracy theory does is says, Don't worry about the other side. They're not just erroneous. They're not just mistaken. They are evil. They are in this case as evil or more evil than Nazis. They literally are abusing children. And you know, if you were in an election against a Nazi and you lost, would you concede peacefully? Say, okay, here you go, Nazi, take over here are the keys to the office. It's not the particular propositions. Is there child sex trafficking going on in the basement of this pizzeria? Although some will believe all of that, like the person who showed up in the pizzeria with an assault rifle and fired it um, in an effort to free the so-called children. But it's more the attitude that it inculcates. The other side isn't just different or mistaken, it's evil, and therefore shouldn't be tolerated. And that's what's motivating conspiracism today, in american politics and it's delegitimating the political opposition and that's incredibly corrosive to you know electoral democracy so so i would sort of say let's not ask why people believe it interesting psychological question we get stuck there we'll never get to the politics of it which is why are people repeating it well because power seekers find it very very useful to delegitimate the opposition it helps them get power and keep power And who knows if Donald Trump believes that the election was rigged. I don't care. I don't know if it's an answerable question as a matter of his psyche, but I still know why he's hiring it. Because everyone who loses an election has a strong incentive to say the election was rigged. And when we get to a political life where everyone who does lose an election says that and convinces their followers to believe it, we won't have a functioning democracy.
1: So this helps me formulate... Why one usual way of talking about conspiracy theories is sort of wrong headed. So, a lot of the time, you know, when people write about misinformation, quote unquote, they say, oh, you know, there's these reasonable people with reasonable beliefs, and then they come across these conspiracy theories or these forms of misinformation. And then because of that, they go and vote for these terrible people or they go and take on these bad beliefs. But that always seemed implausible to me, right? If you have basic set of compassion for the other side of political aisle, if you don't have very extreme political views, you're never going to be convinced that Hillary Clinton is running a sex traffic ring out of a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C., right? It seems to me that it works a little bit the other way around. The reason why people are willing to believe some of these conspiracy theories, whether they truly do so, whether that's just a demonstrative article of faith in order to show how you feel, is to say, those people are so evil, there's nothing I would put past them right? Those people are so evil, they may as well be, you know, child molesters, and perhaps they really are, right? But what does that tell us about how to deal with conspiracy theories? Because I think the reason why that earlier belief is so popular is that it gives a false but relatively simple set of instructions about how to respond to conspiracy theories, which goes vaguely well, you know, people end up believing this stuff because they have exposure to it, so if only we censor Twitter and Facebook, or we change the algorithms or we give people better uh, education or whatever the intervention is supposed to be, then we'll recognize that this is lies and they will be more compassionate towards the other side and things will be great. If that's not what's going on here, right? If the thing that drives these conspiracy theories is pre existing polarization, is a pre existing commitment to hating the other side. What can we do to control the corrosive and dangerous facts that conspiracy theories? have on society, as is the case with the one guy who clearly did truly believe conspiracy theories and set out for the pizza parlor to, quote-unquote, liberate children that didn't exist, and to control the effect of our political system on the ability of people like Donald Trump to say, ignore the outcome of the election, all of that was rigged, I should stay in power.
2: It's the hardest question to answer, and it's in a sense the only question to ask. What can we do about it? Truth and shame. I think those are the two forces we have to marshal. The power of truth still does matter. It matters enormously to simply publicize the fact that Barack Obama was born in the United States and was constitutionally eligible to serve in the office of the presidency. It's absolutely essential to get those facts out there in every way you possibly can. It's not because true believers will change their minds when they see the long form birth certificate. The true believer will never change her mind or his mind. But there are a lot of people out there who don't know what to think. And what conspiracism does is it disorients them. And I'm not quite sure. I don't know about this guy, Obama. Where is he really from? They're not saying he wasn't born in the United States. But the conspiracy theory has them wondering about where he's from and about what he's about. So that's the group we're fighting for. It is a group that could be disoriented. And I'll tell you, who isn't disoriented in today's information ecosystem from time to time? So it can be extremely, extremely rooting and stabilizing to hear someone cite real evidence, publicly available evidence. As elemental as that function is, fact-checking really does, it's absolutely essential. The second thing, though, that I think we have to make more use of is shame. We have to create ways of shaming those who truck in conspiracism. So there's a candidate here in New Hampshire who's running for Senate, the Republican nominee for the U.S. Senate seat. B-O-L-D-O-C, who's running against the incumbent senator, Democrat Maggie Hassan. And throughout the Republican primary campaign, this candidate insisted that the 2020 election was stolen and said things like, I'm never going to stop believing that. I'm never going to stop saying that. I'm never going to get off this horse, I think was the the phrase that, that this person used in a Republican primary debate over the summer. Within five days of winning the primary, this person said, oh, the election wasn't stolen. Joe Biden is the legitimate president of the United States.
1: I don't know whether to respond to that with relief or revulsion. I don't know whether it's worse that somebody is a true believer in a dangerous and crazy idea, or whether it's worse that we pretend to be a true believer in it, but are actually, you know, in political science terms, perfectly rational, you know, saying whatever they need to in order to win the primary and then you know, pivoting as the horrible phrase is in America and the general to have a shot in that election.
2: Yeah. Look, we have to marshal through social media and traditional media the force of public shame. This person should just be shamed nonstop. And yes, you're right. Like he moved his position, but still should be shamed for having been willing so cynically to truck in that conspiracy theory all summer while trying to recruit votes at the extreme wing of the Republican Party, people who might vote in the primary. And listen, this gets back to the question. The question is not, do people believe it? The question is, do they repeat it? And there are incentives for repeating conspiracy theories, even when you don't totally believe them. And the epistemic kind of standards that people bring to the question, can I repeat it? Can I retweet it? Can I forward it? Can I like it? Are much, much lower than the standards that they bring to, do I profess it? And so we have a media ecosystem now where stuff can get spread. It can get repeated by people who won't stand up and say, I believe it. So this kind of validation through repetition is what's empowering conspiracism in our public life. But I think shaming and mockery, the truth function is essential. There's something a little bit goody-goody about it, you know, the fact checker (laughs) is important. But I think mockery, we're not using mockery nearly as much as we should. And mockery is an extraordinarily effective tool in politics.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think the important thing is to deploy mockery when somebody is doing something that really is morally unacceptable and widely unpopular, right? I think we have a lot of mockery that is smug and self-serving because somebody dares to run astray of a relatively narrow consensus. One example of this to me was when Eric Adams was arguing whatever you believe about the substance of that for opening New York City back up in the spring of this year. And he was basically saying, look, um, you know, it's one thing for people who have white collar jobs who sit at home on Zoom to have to look after their kids very, very hard as well. But you know, A lot of, uh, and he used to be afraid, you know, low-educated workers in New York, were in the majority, who have to go out and be there physically when their kids can't go to school, they can't go to their job, and they lose their wages. And so he was actually standing up for working-class New Yorkers, whether or not to agree with his ultimate policy preference. And there was a firestorm on Twitter saying, how dare you say low-educated? Now, perhaps that's not the best term, perhaps... He should in future use some kind of other different term. But you know, when people perceive that somebody's standing up for them, I mean, this person gets mocked because he applied some term for you that you may not even mind that much, or you might prefer a different term, but you probably care more that somebody's standing up for what's in your interest. That I think is a sort of mockery that can often get politicians and Democrats in particular in trouble.
2: Yeah, these are potent tools—shame and mockery. So you can misuse them, and we probably do more than we use them. Right? Here's another one, though. Besides truth and shame, the other side of the human spectrum: nobility. And you know, there's that great moment. If you Google, I think just John McCain moment, you probably get it. When John McCain, in a town hall, encountered a voter who referred to, you know, Barack Obama, someone who wasn't a citizen and wasn't an American, and he interrupts the person, says, "No, ma'am. No, no, ma'am." He is a citizen. He's a good person. He's a family man, McCain says. He and I just disagree about policies and principles. And that's what this campaign is about. And I'm not sure. I think he might have even been booed a bit, lightly booed in that moment in that town hall. But that was John McCain. He was willing to do things like name Sarah Palin to be on the ticket with him to try to win the campaign. But he just wasn't going to truck in conspiracism. And he was just too noble a human being to make an alliance with that. Listen, it sounds high-minded and impossible, but that wasn't all that long ago. I mean, voters have to be attracted to candidates. It's just a tincture of nobility who are like, yeah, I want to win and I'll do lots of things to win. I'll name Sarah Palin, but I'm not going to do anything to win. And without that, I don't know, maybe conspiracism wins.
1: So your last book was on conspiracism. I know that you're at work on a new work also with Nancy Rosenblum on governing. Give us a little bit of a preview of that
2: you know, as I said, we sort of followed the logic of the rigged election conspiracy to the prospect of an attack on election administration. The other great conspiracy, the Trump era, was the deep state conspiracy. And another amazing comprehensive charge that the entire civil service was, you know, machinating to defeat Trump, to humiliate Trump, to defeat the interests of his supporters. And so the very bureaucracy that he commanded as president was actually scheming to oppose him. And this led to a much more comprehensive assault on the administrative state than I think was adequately recognized. There were some like Michael Lewis who kind of saw it and wrote about it, but partly because the administrative state is just, you know, who loves bureaucracy? There's nothing very sexy about it, but it does everything
1: it takes somebody of the narrative skill of Michael Lewis to make it interesting and to get people engaged in it. And even then, I would bet that of all his many best-selling books, that one was probably one who wants that sold least well.
2: He's an extraordinary writer. He has a great knack for it. But I think you know also he's just this somebody, a citizen who uncommonly recognized what kind of threat was at work there. And that's what Nancy and I are writing about in this new book that we're working on right now called Ungoverning. And ungoverning is the word we use to describe this attack on the state itself, an attack on the capacity of the state, an attack on the legitimacy of the state. It's extraordinarily uncommon for political leaders to decide to make the state that they run less capable. It's not something we see a lot of. That's why the word ungoverning is kind of a new concept, I think, although it does show up in other cases of democratic erosion. I think you see it with Bolsonaro in Brazil. Chavez in Venezuela also, I think, pursued elements of an ungoverning strategy, an attack on the administrative state. And so we want to kind of chart this. We want to name it. We want to describe something about its force and its consequences in the hope that we can, whether we're liberal or conservative, resist it. When we were finishing the book on conspiracy and we were sending the manuscript to the press, we said to each other, is this just going to disappear by the time the book comes out? As you know, there's this big lag between when you finish the manuscript and when the book actually gets published. And this is another one. I mean, maybe ungoverning goes away. Maybe it appeared in the 2016 to 2020 window and we're just never going to see it again. Nancy and I actually think that there are potent enough political rewards that can be accessed with an ungoverning strategy that, you know, now that it's been somewhat normalized, we think it will come back. And in particular, what ungoverning does is it allows for concentration of personal power. In the president. And so there will be certain types of, never mind Trump, post-Trump presidents who are going to find an ungoverning strategy really attractive. You know, what the whole idea of governing is about is the power of an institution. And the presidency is an institution. It's an office. I could hold it. Somebody else could hold it. It rotates. through different people. It's not about the individual person. It's about the office. So the presidency could be imperial and powerful. It could be weaker, whatever. What ungoverning is about is is concentrating the personal power of the individual president. It's not about building up the power of the office. And that kind of personal power, it's not what modern government is about, though it is what arbitrary rule before the age of modern government was about. You know That's what ungoverning gets us to. Power seekers are going to find that delicious. And so that's what we're trying to put our finger on to name, to describe, to alert people to.
1: 2024 is no longer that far away, and so the question of whether or not Donald Trump will run and whether he might win is on my mind and the minds of many people. I'm struck by the fact that Trump is not popular, that all of the polls suggest that most Americans dislike him, and that most Americans are pretty skeptical of large parts of the Republican Party. And yet it seems hard for Democrats to build that lasting governing majority that you talked about at the beginning of our conversation. Why is that? What are Democrats doing wrong?
2: I think that we're so indignant at the way the other side assaults and attacks the values that we care about most, that we don't really think we need to make the case for our own principles, our own policies. And we don't think we need to make the case in the way that you would need to to people who don't already agree with you. And so the conversation that we are in, those of us who work in campaigns, who vote in primaries, who write checks, you know, who are really attuned to politics all throughout the year, the conversation we're in is one with people who agree with us all the time. It makes us really really bad at remembering how to make the case for our own program to people who aren't already with us. Just yesterday I was talking to somebody who's working my house a blue collar worker who was sanding my floor. And, you know, we were having a very fun chat and he mentioned to me that he supports Trump. And that's the moment for me to discover something about what makes this person who works super, super hard at a job that certainly doesn't carry health insurance, want to support Donald Trump. And the more I can learn about why that person who's in many ways, I just think, has none of the qualities that Donald Trump himself has that would put you off to Donald Trump as a person and is a very decent, lovely person. What that person finds attractive is the secret to winning in 2024. So I would just beg my friends who happen to be in my party to look for moments like that one that I discovered yesterday. And what did you learn in that conversation? You know, again, I would just go back to the importance of the dignity of work there are a lot of people who really work hard they live by their wits and they've come to identify the democratic party as the party of people who don't want to work and that's so false it's just a slander on the democratic party but i mean i think we need to speak the language of the dignity of work in order to convince people that's not who we are we want to defend the dignity of work we don't want to offend those who do work.
1: So if people are broadly convinced by your arguments, what do you think they can do other than perhaps donate to one of your future campaigns to help the United States survive the threat to its democracy? What can listeners to this podcast do and what can some of your peers in democratic politics do to increase the chances of beating populists like Trump in the years to come?
2: As voters, I really think we have to not just ask which candidate agrees with me most perfectly, which candidate mirrors my own convictions and feelings and passions, but which candidate is going to be able to translate these things that I believe in to people who don't agree with us best. And that's just a different kind of question from the one we normally ask. You know, who do you like, Yasha, who's running? Well, I like so-and-so because you know they appeal to me, but that's not the lock we need to turn right now. In the last election, I mean, who thought Joe Biden would be the candidate, you know, week before the New Hampshire primary, but he proved pretty good at making the case to a really diverse electorate on a nationwide basis. So we need to ask that question. But I do think, you know, in our just daily life, I really think right now in the country, we need to figure out how to have coffee with each other when we don't agree. And I don't think this is going to change the election in 2024, But I do think we need to build a daily life, a culture that grows out of daily life, where we remember how to enjoy each other, even though we disagree ferociously with each other. So I think, you know, say, what can listeners do? What can we do? What can I do? I think we need to cultivate those occasions where we hang out and enjoy each other's company, even though we don't agree. And this goes back to kind of Bob Putnam's work on social capital. I mean, we're not bowling together and we're not in these sorts of places we need to recreate these occasions and practice not for very long <laughs> but just a half hour or so enjoying each other and i don't know quite how that's going to work but i do think that that would do enormous things not just for our ability to knit ourselves together as one complicated community but more importantly i think for our ability to create winning coalitions
1: Russ murhart thank you so much for coming on the podcast
2: A real pleasure. Thanks, Yasha.
1: Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be liked, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show To goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com.
0: This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces.